0: Welcome to my mommy's
1: podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a company I've loved for years for their superfood mushroom-based products. They use mushrooms like lion's mane, chaga, cordyceps, and reishi in all kinds of delicious ways. And mushrooms are amazing in and of themselves. Did you know that mushrooms are more genetically similar to humans than plants are? and that mushrooms breathe oxygen and exhale CO2, just like we do, but they're a little bit more hardy. Mushroom spores can survive the vacuum and the radiation of space. These amazing fungi are always part of my daily routine in some, some shape or form, usually with lion's mane coffee or matcha green tea in the morning. I'll often turn to their plant protein or mushroom elixirs like chaga and cordyceps during the day. And I almost always wind down with reishi or reishi cacao at night, which really seems to help my sleep and relaxation. As a listener of this podcast, you can save on all Four Sigmatic products. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama to save 15%. And again, the spelling of that, it's dot com forward slash wellness mama and make sure to remember to use the code wellness mama all one word all lowercase to save 15 percent this episode is sponsored by everly well at home lab test that you can get without a doctor's order i have used many of their tests in the past and i like to recommend a couple that i have found especially helpful They have an at-home allergy test for 40 of the most common allergens using the same CLIA-certified labs that are used by allergists and doctors. Every lab you get with them is reviewed by an independent physician, and this lab test measures IgE levels of common allergens, including pet dander, mold, trees, grasses, and more, but you can do it from your own home with just a finger stick. I also really like their food sensitivity test, that test for IgG reactions. This was a big key for me in my own health recovery as there were foods that didn't show up as an allergy, but that were causing inflammation for me. I used an elimination diet as well, but this food sensitivity test filled in the missing puzzle pieces for me. Through healing my gut, I've been able to remove almost all of the sensitivities that showed up on my initial food sensitivity test. And the only one remaining for me is eggs. Finding out that I was highly sensitive to eggs made a huge difference. As I was eating them often, they were an inexpensive protein source. But I feel so much better now that I can avoid eggs and I never would have known this without their test. And again, it's an easy at-home finger stick test that I can use to track food sensitivities. I also am using their at-home vitamin D test to keep an eye on vitamin D levels to see if I need to supplement. You can check out those and all of their tests at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash EverlyWell, that's E-V-E-R-L-Y-W-E-L-L, wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash EverlyWell, and use the code MAMA10, M-A-M-A-10, all uppercase, for 10% off any order. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. It's our new line of personal care products that are both non-toxic, and highly effective. This episode is all about how to get your kids to listen without nagging or yelling or losing control, because I am here with Amy McCready from Positive Parenting Solutions, and I think you're really going to enjoy this episode if you have kids. She's the founder of Positive Parenting Solutions and the creator of the Seven Step Parenting Success System, which is a course that I'm going through right now to prepare for this interview. She is also the author of two best-selling parenting books, the first called If I Have to Tell You One More Time and The Me, Me, Me Epidemic. She's a a regular contributor on the Today Show and CBS, CNN, Fox and Friends, Rachel Ray, et cetera. And she's helped thousands of families to have a happier home life and many parents to become calmer, happier parents. And in this episode, she gives a lot of really practical strategies for how to navigate a lot of what we're facing right now, when your kids are home a lot more, how to navigate autonomy versus responsibility in older kids, her when-then system for getting things done without nagging around the house, some tips for getting kids to want to actually do homework and schoolwork without the fight, etc. It's a really fun, enlightening episode. I think you'll enjoy as much as I did. So without further ado, let's jump in. Amy, welcome. Thanks for being here. Katie, thank you so much for having
0: me. I'm thrilled to talk with you.
1: I am so excited about this interview because almost everybody listening is a parent. Most of my audience are moms. And I think this topic is timely and helpful All of the time, but especially right now with so much going on and with summer starting and kids home more, I feel like the information you have is just so vital for parents. So I want to jump right in. This is a thing I get a question about quite a bit as well. And I think you're more qualified to speak on. So I have my kids home all the time because I homeschool. And I hear from my friends who are moms this time of year, like, oh gosh, the kids are going to be home for all these weeks. And they get stressed about it. So let's start there. What do you say to parents who are kind of struggling to balance? that having the kids home for an extended period of time?
0: Well, I think it's always more challenging when kids are home, whether it's summer or holiday breaks or whatever it happens to be. And I think for parents, we have to just give ourselves a little bit of grace and forgive ourselves. We may be a little bit more on edge or we may lose our temper more than we would normally, and that's okay. But the other thing to know is that there are some concrete strategies that you can use all the time, but especially when kids are home on break or vacation or whatever, that can make things go more smoothly, help your routine stay in check. And if they can implement some of those very basic things, then they're going to enjoy that time a lot more with their kids. Their kids will be better behaved. Moms and dads will feel better about that time together and family life will just run a lot more smoothly.
1: That makes sense. And I think Kind of also to start broad, like I'd love to hear a little bit of your story because I've read a little bit of it and I'm going through the Positive Parenting Solutions course right now, but have you always been this patient called mom?
0: <laughs> hardly, hardly. And that's probably the thing that parents don't know about me unless they've heard my story is that I actually, I call myself a recovering yeller because when my kids were younger, I... I wanted to be a great mom. I have great kids and they're wonderful. And But I found myself on a daily basis getting into this cycle of nagging and reminding my kids and nagging and reminding and nagging and reminding, and then I would just blow. And my yelling occurrences were not a one-off. It was a pretty much everyday thing and, and many times, multiple times a day. And so that's actually how I got into what I do now is that I... I would find myself yelling so much and I was feeling so defeated and, and frustrated and sometimes even resentful of my kids, like these people that I love more than anything in the world, but I wasn't being my best self. And so that's when I started studying parenting strategies and it was just so life-changing for our family, for me personally, for my kids. And I, my business background was actually in adult training and, and um, that's what I did for a living. So I took that training expertise and thought, I really feel like I can bring these strategies to parents and teach them in a way that was fun and that would be easy for them to implement. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So to answer your question, no, I'm not a calm and very Zen person by nature. I'm type A, I'm controlling, I'm all of those things that tend to bring out the worst in terms of kids' behavior. But again, once you know the, the tools and the strategies, you can definitely turn that around.
1: I love that. And, you know, we always hear that line that parenthood doesn't come with an instruction manual. And I think that's really true. But I also found out, um, for me, just on the household side, I want to go deep on the parenting side with you, but I had a similar experience where I was so overwhelmed and exhausted and just constantly stressed out at home. And I was running a business and I was running my household. And I stepped back and went, why is it so easy to run my business? And I am so stressed all the time at home. And I realized, at work there were defined expectations i had systems for things i had a plan and goals and it was clearly defined whereas at home i was trying to sort of manage everyone's lives in my head eight people off the top of my head plan all the meals and just keep all of that in my head all the time so from a household perspective i realized if i could put the systems in place for my house that would take a lot of that mental stress away and i would still get the same amount done just without the stress of it and i would guess for parenting you probably discovered some similar things that if if you have the strategies and the frameworks and and the methods to do this, it actually makes your life probably much easier, right?
0: Absolutely. And I, I was laughing to myself when you said, you know, that your job it came so much more easily, and that's what I found as well. I felt like I was very capable in my work job, my out of the ha- outside of the house job, but at home, I felt like I was floundering, and I think. Yes, you're absolutely right. When you put those processes in place and the routines and, and you have the expectations for everyone, it goes so much more smoothly. But the one piece that tends to happen with our kids is that when we when we put the processes in place and when we have the rules and the boundaries and all those things, that's helpful. But our taskmaster nature actually tends to undermine things with our kids. So I always talk about, you know, how much time we spend sort of ordering, correcting and directing that tends to invite power struggles for our kids. So the piece that we have to remember at home is that we have to make sure that we intentionally create those emotional connection opportunities. We're filling their attention buckets because if we don't do those things, all of the systems can be in place. But if we're not doing those emotional connection times with our kids, then we're going to fall into this pattern of attention-seeking behavior and power struggles, and it's going to feel like so much more effort than it really should.
1: I love that. Can you give some examples of what that would look like? Because I feel like a lot of parents, or at least speaking from my own experience, I know you can get stuck in that cycle of, my kids actually do need to get these things done. They need to happen around the house for part of the family. And then you're just stuck reminding them and nagging them. Um, So give us some examples of stepping back and, and reinforcing the emotional connection like that.
0: Yeah. So that's the funny thing is that kids have these hardwired needs for emotional connection and attention. But they won't come to you and say, you know what, mom, I feel like my attention bucket is really not being filled right now. I'm not feeling that warm and fuzzy emotional connection from you. Unfortunately, that need that they have will present itself as being overly clingy and needy and whining and more of these attention seeking behaviors, which makes us more frustrated. And again, you get into this vicious cycle and just like our kids have an attention bucket they also have a power bucket which means that they need to have an age appropriate sense of autonomy and control over their own lives but again they're not going to come to us and say you know I feel like I need more control and decision making opportunities they're going to dig in their heels they're going to push back they're going to resist uh, backtalk those types of things and I always remind parents that kid priorities are not the same as parent priorities. So the more we want them to do the things we want them to do, if we're not meeting their needs for that emotional connection, filling their attention bucket and filling their power bucket, they're going to continue to resist. So the simplest thing is just spending one-on-one time with your kids on a daily basis. And it can be as short as 10 minutes. But We, in our positive parenting solutions community, we call this mind, body, and soul time because it reminds us for that 10 minutes, we are fully present in mind, body, and soul with that child and nothing is more important and you're doing exactly what that child loves to do. So it might be reading a chapter book or playing Legos or jumping on the trampoline It's whatever that child loves. But in those few moments, you're giving them your 100% attention. They're getting that emotional connection with you. And parents are just blown away, Katie, by how much more cooperative kids are. They're willing to do all of those things that are parent priorities and not really kid priorities. But the key is when we meet their hardwired emotional needs first, all the other stuff becomes so much easier.
1: I love that. It's such a good reframe, and I've seen that quote online as well. Of like, you know, we have to remember as parents, especially the adults in these relationships, that when kids act out, often not they're not trying to be the problem; they're having a problem. And if we can reframe it and like look at what are their needs and how can we address this, it totally changes how you look at your child, and it totally changes the relationship. And I think that's encouraging to hear as a parent. Also, is you know, this, this doesn't have to be four hours a day per child, which wouldn't even be possible in my case. You know, it's like just having that actual focused quality time goes so far. And I think I did this somewhat intuitively. One of my daughters, as she got older, was like, I could tell she was pulling back a little bit and just a little bit more moody and reserved. And so I to connect with her on her level, I literally had to start pole vaulting. But now she's like opened up and we've connected so much more, but it it took exactly what you said. It took finding the things she loved to do and me being willing to to try it and not be good at it, which I think is another um, important lesson for parents. You know, like let them see you out of your comfort zone and let them see you work through something difficult because we help them work through difficult things all the time. How does that translate then into... When they do need to get stuff done, when they need to do their laundry or the dishes or whatever it may be, um, do you find just by the nature of putting that time in, they're just so much more willing, or are there strategies that you use to help them also be more willing to want to do those things?
0: Well, just by filling their attention bucket intentionally every day, it is almost, almost like a magic bullet that they are so much more cooperative and easygoing and willing to do those things that they're supposed to do. Now. We all know there's no such thing as a parenting silver bullet, so you need some backup strategies. So one of the strategies that I teach to parents is called the when-then routine. And in a when-then routine, it requires that the yucky stuff is done before the more fun parts of the day. So a when-then routine might sound like this. When you finished unloading the dishwasher, then we can have our special time before lunch. So that yucky thing that they don't want to do gets done before the more enjoyable thing. Or when you've completed your schoolwork, or when you've completed your family contributions, then you can have your 30 minutes of technology time. So we're always positioning the yucky stuff before the more enjoyable things. It's important to note that this is not a reward system. If you do this, then you can get that. That's something very different. Actually, we don't advocate that at all. But it is these normally occurring privileges like whatever maybe technology time you allow or going outside to play with your friends or even our special time together when the family jobs get done or the schoolwork or whatever those things are, then you can enjoy whatever that thing is. But that when-then routine is magical. And in fact, all of your routines should be set up in a when-then format. So In the morning, when kids are going to school, let's say they're going out to school. When you are dressed, your bed is made, hair is combed, backpack and lunchbox are by the door, then we'll have breakfast and we can have some special time before we leave for the bus. Um, In the evenings, when you've had your bath, teeth are brushed and flossed and clothes picked out for the morning, then we'll have our special time before lights out at eight o'clock. So sometimes you have to put a time limit at the end there, but all of your routines you can set up in a when then fashion. And it's fabulous for parents because they can get out of the nagging and reminding business. It really works so beautifully, Katie.
1: That makes sense. And in fact, it probably takes the responsibility of having to do any of that nagging or reminding pretty much off your plate. Because if they come ask, can I do screen time? Can I do play outside? Whatever. you can. All you have to say is, well, did you do this? And it's their, then their choice and their responsibility. Um, What about the one confounding thing I'm thinking is with my older kids. What about when you get older kids who don't want to do the one-on-one time as much, or they're pulling back, or like, you know, just aren't engaging as much in general because they're kind of hitting that age? Is there, how do you emotionally connect with them? That's a great question. So mind, body, and
0: soul time, I really advocate for kids of all ages, but sometimes we position it differently. So for all kids, if possible, I like to label it. So call it something, you know, Jason and mommy time, whatever you want to call it. Now for older kids, you may not label it. So you don't want it to turn into this big, like, you know, they roll their eyes when you say, okay, it's, you know, Jeffrey and mommy time. You just sort of make it happen without making a big pronouncement about of it. Out of it. And so sometimes that's just be, that is just being in their vicinity. Like, so if they're sitting, reading a book, you sit down with your book and read it with them. And then afterwards, you can say, Oh, I love sitting here reading with you. This is so cool. So we don't make a big deal about it beforehand, but you sort of just slide your way into whatever they're doing, but then you bookend it with just that little, Oh, I love spending this time with you. This is so fun. And then the other thing is being interested in what they're interested in. And so if they're into photography or even social media, like you said before, let them teach you things. So let them teach you how to use new platforms or how to do photos properly on Instagram and all of those types of things that kids are so much better at than we are use that as an opportunity to emotionally connect with them. But the connection time is still really important for teens. We just do it slightly differently. The other little thing, Katie, too, even for teens, I love having some sort of a a tuck-in routine with them, if you will. Again, it's going to look different than your littles, but just some connection time where you are just spending a few minutes with them connecting, talking about the day, whatever it is. It's just so powerful. And kids may act like they don't want it, but they really do love it once you get into a good routine.
1: That makes sense. I could definitely see that. And from that to the other end of the spectrum, at least for me, um, with toddlers, I feel like that's they're the easy ones to connect because they're sponges and if you want to read a book or they'll play legos any of that they love it but then you run into more of like um, the tantrum or meltdown phases where it's like how do you break that cycle when they're in that kind of a phase oh
0: that's the that's the classic question for the younger ones that's for sure so a couple of things you will find that when you start doing the mind body and soul time consistently on a daily basis the frequency and intensity of those tantrum episodes will decrease. That is proven time and time again. So that's the first piece. The second piece is when that tantrum happens, again, recognize that that child is having difficulty. It's not about you, the child is having a hard time. So the most important thing is to connect, be there, get down on their level through trial and error, figure out what's going to help that child in that moment, show empathy, work on calming strategies, breathing techniques, all of those things that um, sort of help recenter the mind and body. We can start to teach those things at a young age. We have to recognize that these are kind of skills that kids have to learn and it takes a little while, but we can start that process right then and there. But I think if we view it, As you said earlier, this child is having a hard time rather than it being a misbehavior. It puts us in a totally different mindset in terms of how we respond to that child, and it's going to completely shift how quickly the child comes out of that episode.
1: That makes sense. Okay. So in the very beginning, we started talking a little bit about routine, and I'd love to circle back to that, especially with times like kids being home for the summer and not the normal school year type routine. Is that do you recommend being rigid and creating a routine to kind of keep through the summer or being more lenient in, in times like that? How do you navigate those?
0: Yeah, so I am big on routine. I don't think we have to be militant, but I think a routine is important. One, because human beings in general, but especially kids, crave a sense of order. And most kids. Do better when there is a sense of order to their day. And so, if there can be a general routine that we follow, things happen in a certain order of events, the day will just go more smoothly. So, if you are homeschooling, you know, you kind of have your block schedule in terms of the order in which we do things within those blocks, and there can be a lot of flexibility. So, if it's a movement or a creativity block, what we do within that can be very flexible. But you will do less nagging and reminding Katie if we can have a routine that we follow even during the summer Now we want summers to be fun and all of that, but certain things can remain the same. So Kids have family contributions and I call them family contributions not chores. We can talk about that later, but um, They have family contributions that they do every day. I highly recommend that bedtimes remain the same and and it can be the bedtime can be different. Say during the summer, the time can be different during the summer than during the school year if they're going out to school. But it should be the same every night because kids' internal clocks—they still need the same amount of sleep. They're, they don't. Their internal clocks don't recognize the difference between a Saturday night versus a Tuesday night. So keeping routines the same for bedtime can really go a long way in just easing just a lot of stress and anxiety for the parent. The other reason that's important is that if the bedtime is 8 o'clock one night and 8.30 the next and 9 the next, you really don't have a bedtime routine. You don't have a bedtime. So it becomes negotiable every night and it can turn into this power struggle. So even during summer vacations or holidays or when we're all home for other reasons, the more that we can keep the routine pretty consistent, it'll just make things a lot easier for parents and a lot easier for kids.
1: Gotcha. Okay. And I, I'm glad that you brought up uh, bedtime because I think that's another area where parents can have a lot of difficulty and it, it seems to change. So, the little ones, it, from, at least in my house, it's been more of the having trouble getting them to get in bed, stay in bed, and then they need water and they need to go to the bathroom and then they had a bad dream or whatever all the things may be. Um, with my older ones, it's more of anything. They just want to stay up and read longer. But, any strategies for navigating bedtime at all the different ages and enforcing it without it being a fight?
0: Yes, so that we could talk an entire hour just on bedtime. There's so much to cover here, but just some general guidelines. So you talked about all the requests, the drink of water, the one more hug, all of those types of requests that you get during the bedtime routine. I recommend that you, with your kids, revisit what that routine is going to look like. So all the things that they ask for, you build that into the routine. And so we decide that, you know, lights out is at 7.30 or 8 o'clock or whatever time that is. And then all of those things, that extra kiss and the drink of water and the back rub, all of those things happen within the routine. Once you close the door, that's it. Now, you can prepare ahead, like you can keep a sippy cup in the room with just, you know, a little tiny bit of water in it. So if they get thirsty in the middle of the night, they have it there. But once the door closes, that's it. Now, there's there's quite a bit of a training process that we help parents with to kind of navigate that so it doesn't turn into a big power struggle. But what we don't wanna be in the business of is just responding all night long with these requests because then parents never get a break, they're exhausted, they end up dreading the bedtime routine and it's a big power struggle. The other thing that I recommend is that uh, the tuck-in time be one parent and one child. Rather than you know we read books with everybody together, we do prayers with everybody together, all of those things. While that's efficient, it doesn't really fill their attention bucket. And the other problem is when there's you know two kids and one parent, sort of the pack mentality can set in and they start acting up, and that can be difficult. So the more you can do one parent, one child for the tuck-in routine, which means you'll be staggering, um, that will gonna, that's going to give you better results. Then for older kids, that is just sort of working with them. You know, if they want to have more reading time, that's probably fine, but still having a lights out time that you respect. Certainly we want to have a technology lights out time long before their actual bedtime, just so they're not doing a lot of technology right before they go to bed. So a a lot of things to consider in the bed, in the whole bedtime routine, depending on the age of the child, the preferences of the parents. And what kind of power struggles we're having in general?
1: Gotcha. And I, I'm glad you brought up technology as well, because certainly this is an area that uh, I feel like our generation kind of uniquely gets to figure out how to handle with kids. Because uh, at least for me, I that was just starting to come around when I was a teenager. So it wasn't really like there was no social media at that point. My parents didn't really have to figure out how to navigate that. And now. We have kids with these devices, and they're connected to the world through technology, which has many advantages, and certainly is not going away. And as adults, they're going to need to know how to navigate technology. But as parents, we have a responsibility for teaching them to navigate it responsibly, and also not letting it take over our family lives. And and also, before we jump into any topic like this, I also want to say I realize this is different. I'm sure in every family, and there are times where kids are using technology for schoolwork or for other things. So I'm not trying to like poo technology at all. I just am curious, um, do you have any guidelines for navigating technology appropriately at all the different stages?
0: Yes, it is important that you really give some thought to that because you're right. Kids, whether they are doing remote schooling, you know, they're going to have technology that they're using for that. And there's not much that we can do about that as parents, but there is a lot of what I call recreational technology time. Um, that kids are spending. And we do have the responsibility to put some boundaries around that. We have the responsibility to do training around that. So it really, it, it can't be a free-for-all that you know, all day long they can have access to the technology. So again, it's going to depend on the age of your kids. But first, I recommend that you make technology part of a when then routine that we talked about earlier. So when your family contributions are done, then you can have your technology time. We also want to be very clear that when technology time is over, we put it away and then it's over. If there's a lot of griping or groaning or complaining or mom, can I just have five more minutes? And if, it's in, if it turns into a power struggle every day, then that's not working. And so that tells you that probably that child may not be mature enough to handle the privilege of that technology. And we really want to back off of it for a while, or we might need more training or whatever it happens to be, but it cannot turn into a situation where the parent is the technology police and that every day it's a battle because that's not working for anybody. So we're going to put those boundaries in place. If kids cannot follow the rules that you've set forth based on your wisdom and what you know is appropriate for their um, emotional well-being and safety, if they can't follow those rules, then they're not going to have access to that technology. And that's, in in working with parents, I think that's one of the most difficult things, Katie, because parents fear the wrath of their kids um, when they limit technology. And so they are fearful of putting the boundaries around it. And and then it turns into a free-for-all. So we have to do that. If kids can follow the rules, then they can have access to the technology because it is a privilege. It's not a right. The other thing is that the training piece is really important. You wouldn't send your kid out with a car, in the car without any training. Well, the same is true for technology. So teaching them how to use it responsibly. And there's a lot of great online resources for that. How to use social media responsibly? Training on your digital footprint, all of those types of things are really important. That's our job. And so if we're gonna allow them to have that technology, we need to make sure that we do take time for training as well.
1: Gotcha, okay, I think those are great guidelines. Um, another thing that seems to be an issue with, with um, certain parent-kid dynamics is backtalking or acting sassy with parents. Any strategies for that? I would guess like everything we've talked about, probably the one-on-one time helps and just having natural consequences and systems built in so you're not constantly nagging means there's fewer times for that. But any other strategies or ways that you navigate?
0: You're right, Katie. That's probably the number one thing that parents bring to me as like the problem behavior. It's that backtalk and sassiness and attitude. But the thing that we have to remember, and we talked about this kind of at the beginning, is that that is the symptom. It's not the real problem. So if we can think about the back talk as the symptom and not like that's not the thing that we have to fix, we want to address the root cause of the behavior. And so as you said, we can do that by filling their attention bucket one-on-one every single day. That is essential. And again, if there's a magic bullet in parenting, that is it. We also want to be aware of our communication and how much ordering, correcting, and directing that we do. One of the things that I teach to parents in our program is um, a parent personality assessment program. So, like to figure out how your personality brings out certain behaviors in your kids. So, for me, my personality is super controlling naturally. So, I will if, if I allow my natural controlling, Miss bossy Pants tendencies to show too much. I'll naturally get power struggles. So for parents, they can learn how to sort of tweak their natural responses so they do less ordering, correcting, and directing, and then use other tools that will get better cooperation. That will help reduce the backtalk. When that does happen, again, remember that the child is having difficulty. There's something else going on. So to show grace and empathize with that child. Wow, you seem really frustrated. Wow, I can tell you are really mad about this empathize with whatever it is they're being sassy about. Forget the sassiness for a minute and get to like what the theme is that they're really upset about and show empathy with that. We're going to be much more likely to get through that if, again, we connect on that emotional level. The other thing that we can do is recognize that the back talk, the sassiness, those are power behaviors. So when kids are exerting their power behaviors, it is usually an indication that they're not feeling enough personal control, power, autonomy over their own worlds, over their own world. So there are strategies we can use for that. A simple one is giving them more decision-making opportunities. So think about areas in your family life where you can get kids more involved in making decisions. Maybe it's meal planning for the week. Um, If the family is taking a vacation several months from now, get them involved in that. The more that they can have real-world decision-making opportunity, that is going to really help their power bucket. And then the last thing that I would say, and this is the hardest, Katie, is don't take the bait. When kids kind of serve up that sassy remark, that backtalk remark, it is so instinctive for us to respond with power. You will not speak to me that way. you know, I demand respect or whatever the words are that you would say, but when we do that, it totally escalates the power struggle. So instead, if we can refuse to uh, take the bait and just say with a smile and in a calm voice, say, "Sweetie." I'd love you too much to argue about this. Let's talk about this when we're both feeling more calm. But just that smile on your face and a calm voice, I love you too much to argue about this. It just diffuses it. It it says, I'm not going to engage in this power struggle. I'm not accepting your invitation. And we'll talk about this later. Whatever it is that you're upset about, that's important to me but I'm not going to get into a battle with you. So again, I, I keep saying this, but we could talk for just a whole hour on back talk and attitude and sassiness, but just sort of remembering those core issues of why it's happening in the first place and addressing that will be our best strategy.
1: Yeah, I think you're so right. It's important to reframe that. And I I really also like that you brought up the control autonomy dynamic because um, I'm just in the early stages of having to navigate this. So I'm by no means an expert, but it is something I think a lot about right now, just having a teenager and, and soon to have another teenager and remembering what it was like to be a teenager as well. And I've read enough psychology to know kids in that age, especially once they hit the teenage years, psychologically, they actually are trying to become more independent. And it's an important psychological stage for them as they're preparing for adulthood. And also as parents, we, of course, want them to be prepared for adulthood and to have the skills and the foundation they need to be independent and to live outside our homes. Um, And I'm seeing firsthand and, and definitely understand how difficult that is because at the end of the day, like I still think of my oldest as my baby, even though he's almost as tall as I am, but realizing they do need to learn to have that autonomy and to feel control over and, and ability to make their own decisions. In our house, we turn a saying on its head. So most people have heard the saying with great power comes great responsibility. And we tell our kids, it actually works the other way. With great responsibility comes great power. When you show us that you're responsible, we want to give you freedom, and we want to give you the power to make decisions. And so we have constant conversations around that. Um, But just because it's so top of mind, for me right now, I'm curious, are there any like guidelines or ideas that you have for navigating with teenagers when certain levels of autonomy are appropriate? Or is it very much case by case based on the maturity level of the child and the relationship with the parent? Um, or how do you handle that?
0: First off, I just love what you just said. With great responsibility comes great power. That's amazing. The other thing that I just want to our listeners to remember is that this issue about needing more autonomy and control is absolutely an issue with teenagers, but it is the exact same thing with your two-year-old, three-year-old, six-year-old. It doesn't matter. Every kid at every stage has a need for autonomy and control. So I just don't want people to think that we need to wait till the teen years to be thinking about this. But let's talk specifically about what you asked When we want kids to be prepared to be successful in the adult world, and so we have to do our job to train them. So part of that is on an ongoing basis, always training them on tasks that they'll need to do in the adult world, whether that's managing their money or um, changing air filters in the house or car maintenance or gardening or whatever those things are, we always want to be training them on adult tasks so that when they leave the house, they'll be prepared. But in terms of taking on more responsibility, one of the tools that I just love is called Convince Me. And this tool would apply when your kids want to do something. Maybe they want to, you know, it's a middle schooler who wants to go to the mall on their own with friends or Somebody wants to go to a concert in the next town or start driving or whatever it happens to be. It is something that your kids want to do that you're a little bit like, "Mm, I'm just not totally sure I'm ready for that. So you would use the tool convince me. And so the way that works is you would share your concerns. So you would say, you know, I understand that this is really important to you. Let me share my concerns about you going to the concert or going to the mall or, or riding your bike to school, whatever that happens to be. These are my concerns. So, why don't you take some time and think about this and come back to me with your plan to address my concerns? And so that's what the kid does. They take some time and then they come back and they try to convince you, if you will, but they do it in a way that takes all of your concerns into consideration and then they share the plan that they've come up with. And so, then if you are comfortable with the plan that they've put forth, you can say, okay, I feel comfortable with that. It seems to me that you've thought through all of the possible things that could go wrong. You have a backup plan in place. This sounds great. Let's go ahead and and, do whatever you've asked to do. And then you see how that goes. If they do well, then that makes you think, wow, yes, he did a really good job by taking on this additional responsibility. And uh, now I feel comfortable giving him more responsibility in the future. Or if not, if it didn't go so well, well, then that tells you you've got more training to do. We have more work to do in terms of responsibility. But the reason that I love this is because it requires the child to understand your point of view. So we're fostering that empathy. And then they have to use their reasoning and decision-making and planning skills to come up with something to convince you that would address all of your concerns, but still let them get the outcome that they want. And so it's just a great strategy for adult life, right? We'll be doing the same thing in our jobs or um, in group projects in college or whatever. And you can start doing this really as young as six or seven. Obviously the, the problems and the issues will be different, but you can use these strategies, you know, all the way through into the teen years. And it's, it's, it's great for kids and it's great for parents.
1: That's so great. i'm gonna I'm writing that one down to remember for sure because you're right. it puts the control actually in their hands. They're getting to have a chance and it removes all those things I used to say as teenagers of like, "You don't understand or you don't listen to me or whatever it is because you are listening as well. Um, like you said, and then you're having them pull from skills that will serve them their entire lives to develop um, and potentially be able to get the outcome they want if they, are able to do that effectively, which I love. I feel like there's also crossover here when it comes to schoolwork or homework and how to navigate that. Um, I've personally always taken the approach that even though I homeschool teach them, I'll teach the concept, but I'm not going to handhold and babysit and go through every problem with them. That school, That's actually their work and I want them to learn how to kind of autonomously work through it themselves. And I feel like we have a good rhythm on this because we've been home, homeschooling for so long, but I hear from a lot of parents who say things like, it's just getting to be so much. I have five hours of homework with my kid every single night after school, or I spend, you know, three hours trying to get my first grader to do worksheets and any advice for parents who are trying to navigate that.
0: Yes. And that can be a real challenge. And I, I totally feel for parents, especially if you have multiple kids, but there are some simple sort of things that you can put in place to avoid that. First, as with all things, you will be successful with homework If and schoolwork if you have filled their attention bucket first So again, if your kids are coming home after school take that time to connect Emotionally first before you start being the taskmaster and 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 start with okay We have to get the homework done and what are your assignments and all of that start with connection first It makes everything else go more smoothly the next thing is have some homework policies in place so one of your policies can be, I am happy to help you with anything that you need in your homework, as long as you've done as much of you as you can on your own, and then you can come to me and let me know what you still need help with. Now, when you come to me and let me know where you're having trouble, I want to know your thought process for trying to figure this out. So basically, Katie, I don't want them coming and saying, I just can't do this. This is too hard. I want to know, okay, on number seven, I see this problem. Tell me your thought process for going through it and where did you struggle? That way I know they've put some time into it and they're not just playing the helpless card. The other thing is have homework help hours. So that means I'm willing to help you with your homework from 5.30 to 8.30. After that, I'm too tired. It's not going to, you know, that's not going to work for me. So have homework help hours, like your office hours, if you will, that gets you out of the situation where they're coming at, you know, 930 at night, I can't do this and it's due tomorrow. And. So really put your homework help policies in place. Again, I tell parents you've already done the fifth grade. Your job is not to sit there and you know side by side with your child while they complete their homework and, and you being involved in it. As you said, you want them to be doing that autonomously. You're certainly there to support, but it's not your job. I would also have a talk with the teacher and let the teacher know that you are working on um, training for responsibility in your home. And so you will be there to support your child in doing their homework if they need help, but you're not gonna coax and prod and that sort of thing. And so that then allows the natural consequences to play out. So if the kid doesn't get the homework done, then that's a discussion they're having with the teacher, and you can stay out of it. I think, Katie, where we run into trouble is parents feel like, oh, I'm going to look like a terrible parent if my kid doesn't get their homework done. Let the kid experience the natural consequence at school. That's going to be much more effective, and it's going to keep you out of the role of bad guy. Obviously, if there is a learning difference or an attention difference or other interventions that are required, you can you know, work with with the the teacher and the clinicians and whoever is on your team to do that. But they should be autonomously doing their homework, just as you suggested.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of natural consequences as well. And I've never heard it framed as well as you did with the when and then, which I think is just the language of that is wonderful because it avoids the power struggle and it lets them easily understand it literally two words that this happens when you've done this. But I think you're right. I think there's been a shift. At least it seems like, obviously, I've only parented this current generation, but it seems like there's a shift, even since I was a kid, of trying to protect kids from natural consequences or not wanting them to have to feel the discomfort of not getting a good grade at school or not or facing something that's difficult. Um, and it's funny because I, I don't think my parents had those same fears. I always knew I, I had to get my schoolwork done. And if I messed up at school, I was going to get in trouble at school. They certainly weren't going to save me. And then I was going to get in trouble when I got home, too. Um, But there does seem to be at least a little bit more protecting kids from natural consequences. Um, What other ways can we gently and lovingly incorporate those natural consequences? Because I feel like as adults, that's something we all deal with very much every single day. If we don't do our jobs, if we don't take care of our houses, if we don't do any of the things that adults have to do, there are very, very real natural consequences. So how can we let our kids start learning that from the earliest of ages?
0: Yes, absolutely. In fact, Katie, you're doing our course right now, so you'll be getting to this in step three, where we talk about creating a consequential environment. If we don't create a consequential environment at home, our kids are really gonna struggle when they're out on their own and have to face consequences for the first time. So, you know, from the younger years all the way up through the teens, we have to create that consequential environment. And some of those come from like natural consequences. Well, if you refuse to take your coat to school, you may be cold outside at recess, if it's the middle of winter, that's just a natural consequence. But then there's also consequences around personal responsibility. So you mentioned homework is one of them, that if you don't get your homework done, then you're going to have to face that consequence with your teacher. One of the things that we talk about is implementing a no-rescue policy. And a no-rescue policy is for areas in which we've been through this a million times, whether it's remembering your lunchbox or remembering the homework or your sports equipment or whatever it is. We've talked about this. We've trained on it. I've already rescued you probably more times than I should have, but now I know that it's time to implement the no rescue policy. And so that starts with training and we always kind of position it in a very positive way because marketing is everything. You know, you are really growing up and you're becoming so responsible in so many ways. And so now this is an area where you can take responsibility. So let's say it's the sports equipment. So from now on, you're going to be, you're going to be responsible for packing your sports bag and remembering to take it, making sure you have your uniform and your cleats and all of the equipment. I'm not going to get involved in that anymore. I'm not going to remind you that is going to be your responsibility. And if you choose not to take that responsibility, if you don't have your stuff ready, if you forget your stuff, I'm not going to be driving it to the field. So what that means, Katie, is, you know, I've I've taken time for training. Oh, and also part of this has to do with systems. So I would say, since I'm not going to be reminding you about this anymore, what systems do you need to put in place so you can remember what you need to do for soccer or for your homework or whatever it happens to be? So we've done the training. We've put the systems in place. We've sort of set the expectation that we're not going to rescue now we have to let it play out and let the child experience the consequence. Again, bring the coach or the teacher into the loop if that makes you feel better so they know you're not a slacker parent, but in fact, you're teaching responsibility. And if he shows up without his equipment, you know, you encourage the coach to implement the consequences that he has in place. So it's implementing that no rescue policy. It's not for a once in a blue moon mistake. We all make those. And as a family, we have each other's back. We help each other out. But for ongoing consistent issues that we have talked about, then we know it's time for the no rescue policy. So that's one example in many examples of how to create a decision-rich environment for your kids that are going to set them up to be accountable, responsible for their own choices, and, and to be successful functioning in a teen and an adult world.
1: Got it. And I also want to hear the explanation because you use the word family contributions, which I love because I think chores has a negative connotation and adults don't do chores. We just contribute to the family as well. But I'd love to hear like how you first of all came up with that term and, and how you use that because I think it's such a great alternative.
0: Yeah, it's so funny. You, you ask how I came up with that term, and I actually don't have any idea. Uh, I don't remember how I came up with it, but you're right. The, the word chores just denotes drudgery. Nobody wants to do chores. That sounds awful. And when you call those things family contributions, it doesn't make the task any more enjoyable. Nobody enjoys folding laundry or unloading the dishwasher. But it does reinforce to your kids that when you do those things, it makes a difference for our family. And again, part of that power bucket that I talked about is a feeling of significance. We all have a hardwired need to make a difference, to be significant, to contribute to the greater good. And so for the for a child or a teenager, kind of the, the, the greater good is their family. And so when they are doing those things, they are contributing. So, I highly recommend that parents change the language on that. I will tell you, Katie, to this day, my kids still roll their eyes a little bit when I say family contributions, but that doesn't stop me one bit. I still call them that because when they contribute, it makes a difference. And the other piece of that is that we need to remind our kids what a difference their efforts make. And so, even though it's, and this applies to your partner too, even though it's their regular job. Let them know when you do that, that makes such a difference for me. That makes our home run so much more smoothly. That's a big job that I don't have to do. We have to remember on an ongoing basis to let our people know how much we appreciate their contributions because that makes them feel better about it. When they know that their efforts are making a difference for you, they're going to be more likely to want to do it in the future.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, and it's a great reminder. A lot of these things, just even our language and our reframing and making time for one-on-one connection, those are all such important things with a partner too, not just with our kids. Uh, Yeah, I think those are such such helpful things. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a company I've loved for years for their superfood mushroom-based products. They use mushrooms like lion's mane, chaga, cordyceps, and reishi in all kinds of delicious ways and mushrooms are amazing in and of themselves. Did you know that mushrooms are more genetically similar to humans than plants are? And that mushrooms breathe oxygen and exhale CO2, just like we do, but they're a little bit more hardy. Mushroom spores can survive the vacuum and the radiation of space. These amazing fungi are always part of my daily routine in some, some shape or form. Usually with lion's mane coffee or matcha green tea in the morning, I'll often turn to their plant protein or mushroom elixirs like chaga and cordyceps during the day. And I almost always wind down with reishi or reishi cacao at night, which really seems to help my sleep and relaxation. As a listener of this podcast, you can save on all Four Sigmatic products. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellness and use the code wellness mama to save 15%. And again, the spelling of that it's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C, dot com forward slash wellness mama and make sure to remember to use the code wellness mama all one word all lowercase to save 15 percent this episode is sponsored by everly well at home lab test that you can get without a doctor's order i have used many of their tests in the past and i like to recommend a couple that i have found especially helpful they have an at-home allergy test for 40 of the most common allergens using the same CLIA-certified labs that are used by allergists and doctors. The la- every lab you get with them is reviewed by an independent physician, and this lab test measures IgE levels of common allergens including pet dander, mold, trees, grasses, and more, but you can do it from your own home with just a finger stick. I also really like their food sensitivity test that tests for IgG reactions. This was a big key for me in my own health recovery as there were foods that didn't show up as an allergy but that were causing inflammation for me. I used an elimination diet as well but this food sensitivity test filled in the missing puzzle pieces for me. Through healing my gut, I've been able to remove almost all of the sensitivities that showed up on my initial food sensitivity test and the only one remaining for me is eggs. Finding out that I was highly sensitive to eggs made a huge difference. As I was eating them often, they were an inexpensive protein source. But I feel so much better now that I can avoid eggs. And I never would have known this without their test. And again, it's an easy at-home finger stick test that I can use to track food sensitivities. I also am using their at-home vitamin D test to keep an eye on vitamin D levels to see if I need to supplement. You can check out those and all of their tests at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash EverlyWell, that's E-V-E-R-L-Y-W-E-L-L, wellnessmama.com, forward slash go, forward slash EverlyWell, and use the code MAMA10, M-A-M-A-10, all uppercase, for 10% off any order. I'd also love to hear, because I know you've worked with probably now thousands of families, for people listening who are wondering, like, this all sounds great and it makes sense, but does it actually work and do you really see a big difference and how long does it take? So can you talk about kind of what is a typical path that someone, a family will see when they start implementing these things or maybe tell us a couple of stories of families that have used these strategies and how that changed their lives?
0: Oh my goodness. I could go on forever. But um, so there are some changes that you see immediately and some that take a little bit longer. So I'll give you a couple of examples. The the mind, body, and soul time that I mentioned, that tool of that one-on-one time every single day you will see a difference in your kids behavior in one or two days promise like it just as i said if there's such thing as a magic bullet that is it because it is getting to their core emotional needs so that change you see right away now in the work that i do with parents I like to make it really easy for them. So I teach it kind of in a step-by-step pattern. So you implement one tool and then you build on it with the next and the next. And with each tool that you implement, you are getting better and better results. And and that makes sense because all of the tools focus on giving kids the positive power that they have to have. Um, But then also the other tools are intended to sort of diffuse those power struggles, but in a way that's more positive than we've done before. So the more you use the tools in general, the behavior gets better and better. So with the mind, body and soul time, you'll see that right away. Now with sibling rivalry and fighting, that takes a little bit longer to implement and, and to see the results. You'll see some initial results right away, but it won't solve every single thing in the first week, of course. And the reason for that is, so for you, you have a 13-year-old, your oldest is 13, Katie. What is your, what's the age of your next child?
1: 11, almost 12. Okay.
0: So between those two kids, there's 11 years of baggage or competition rumblings that have sort of been baked into the relationship. And so that's an example that takes just a little bit longer to resolve because we have to teach kids the conflict resolution strategies and and we kind of have to work at some of that baked in competition that naturally happens because, right, the second you bring home or the, the day that you bring that second baby home from the hospital, there's some competition that is just baked in. That's just the way it works. So those types of those types of behaviors may take a little bit longer to turn around. But in terms of transformation, I would encourage your listeners to go and read our Google reviews, our five-star Google reviews. The transformation is just amazing. And it's parents who felt like they were failing at their most important job. They feel like they're not even cut out for parenthood. They feel like they 're not meeting their kids' needs like every day it just is a cycle of frustration and guilt, and they they just feel extremely discouraged and then they start implementing the tools and things start to turn around so we have so many success stories, whether it 's on you know getting your kids to sleep through the night, whether it 's uh, the sibling thing that I talked about, whether it 's um, just the emotional connection with your kids, reducing the power struggles. There's so many, there's so many transformations, but you know, as a mom of now I have young adults, like I will tell you that time just goes so quickly and you want to look back on it and think, yes, like I really enjoyed that time with my kids. You want your kids to look back on their growing up years and think, yes, I had a great relationship with my parents. Things weren't always perfect, but When things came up, we dealt with it in a way that was positive and it was solution focused. And we want them to have those good memories. Um, So the transformation can absolutely come. The thing that I always tell parents, Katie, is that parenting is not intuitive. Like just because you're smart and loving and nurturing and you're a good person, that doesn't mean that you have the tools to deal with temper tantrums and target or, you know, the total, the the meltdowns or the defiance or the sassiness or the homework castles, Like we don't have that stuff intuitively, but the good news is it's things that you can learn, really simple strategies that parents can pick up and just make such a difference in their day in day out life with their kids.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so far I'm really enjoying the course and I know you have a couple of books as well. I'll make sure those are all linked in the show notes. So for all of you guys listening, you can head over to wellnessmama.fm. And find the show notes there. But um, just talk a little bit about the system you have in in your course and the books and what you recommend for parents. Like, where should they jump in?
0: Yeah. So our system is called the Seven Step Parenting Success System. And again, it's kind of a very linear approach because that's the way my brain thinks. But it teaches parents all of those tools that they need to bring out the very best in their kids' behavior, but also to bring out the best in the parents' behavior so they can get out of the nagging and reminding and yelling Um, cycle that they have been in. So in the seven steps, parents learn the tools in the toolbox, but then there's also the uh, more intensive advanced modules. So if you have a bedtime problem, if you have a mealtime problem, if you have a child, you're struggling with schoolwork and homework for a child with ADHD. So there's all these very specific advanced modules to tackle Um, specific problems. So parents can just progress through that and learn all of those tools and have the advanced modules. If they want to sort of test drive what that system is all about, they can take a free class that we have. It's called um, Get Kids to Listen Without Nagging, Reminding, or Yelling. I can give you that link too. I also have two books, if I have to tell you one more time. And then the other one is called The Me, Me, Me Epidemic, which is all about unentitling our kids. So lots of different places that parents can get information, I'd say definitely start with the free class because that way they can sort of dip their toe in and see if they like what I teach and and they can put those tools, you know, into place right away with their own families and see what kind of results they get.
1: I love it. So again, all those will be in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm so you guys can find them. Um, This was such a fun episode. Our time- flew by. And another question I selfishly love to ask at the end, um, because I'm a very avid reader, is other than your own, if there's a book or a number of books that have really changed your life, and if so, what they are and why?
0: Oh, this is such a hard question. I'm sure everybody tells you that. But there are a couple of books um, that I love. So this first one has been around for a while. You may be familiar with it. It's called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success by Dr. Carol Dweck. and It is a great read. It's an easy read, but it's all about her groundbreaking research on a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And that applies to everyone, whether it's sports, academics, your work life, but so important for your parenting. And There are things that we parents do that sort of undermine a growth mindset for our kids, um, particularly as it relates to praise. And so her book is really a mindset shift for a lot of parents. I've also incorporated a lot of her concepts into what I teach. So that's a great one. Another one that I love, and again, this is from forever ago, but it is still a classic. Um, It's called How How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish. And again, super easy read, like lots of cartoons, but it's ways to phrase things to kids so that it's accepted with an open heart, um, doesn't invite a power struggle, but allows you to get things done. So that's, again, as I said, it's a classic book, but it is one of my favorites and one that I always recommend to parents.
1: I love both of those suggestions. And like I said, this has been such a fun interview. I think it's gonna help a lot of families and I'm going through your course right now. So I'll make sure that links in the show notes as well. But um, thanks for the time and for all the research. This has been fun.
0: Well, thank you. I really appreciate the time to chat with you and thanks for all of the important work that you're doing out there for your community.
1: And thanks as always to all of you for joining us today and sharing one of your most valuable resources, your time with us. We're very grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.